Hello and welcome to the final episode of this season of Death at the Wing. My name is Jody Avergan. I'm the editor and one of the producers for the series. And in this episode, we're going to wrap up the whole series with a conversation about the series as a whole. Some of the stuff we didn't get to, we will play you some tape that you haven't heard before, some behind the scenes stories, lots of questions from listeners. I, of course, am hosting today, but the real host of the show is Adam McKay. Adam, uh, hello. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Jody. My pleasure. Thanks for everything on this series. Uh, incredible work. Likewise. And so we're going to talk for a couple minutes just about the series as a whole, and then we're going to bring on Brian and Raghu, the lead producers on this, and talk about some of the other stuff um, that I mentioned. But, you know, I actually was wondering if I could ask you about Adam Curtis. So uh, it's always a good thing to begin your work by referencing someone <laughs> incredibly brilliant and talented and ambitious. But but we actually talked about Adam Curtis a fair amount while making this thing. We're both huge fans of his work. And um, can you just talk about who he is and what he does and, and maybe a bit about how it connects to our series? As soon as we started talking about this subject and we dove into it, we realized there wasn't one single clean line to explain this spate of tragic deaths. And the name, which I, I I had no idea you were in Adam Curtis when we started working together on this. Oh, yeah. And the name came up. Jody instantly knew who Adam Curtis was. We started talking about it with Raghu and Brian. And we realized that was a form, Adam Curtis's unique form of storytelling was going to work for this. And what Curtis does, for people who don't know who he is, he's a documentarian for the BBC, but to call him that is really not explaining who he is. He does these one-of-a-kind psychological thematic histories of modern civilization. They air in the UK as five, six, seven part series. You can see them on YouTube here in the US for free. BBC doesn't care. They just put them on YouTube. His uh, most recent one's called Can't Get You Out of My Head. And what he does is he tells like five, six stories and runs them all against each other. So it'll be something as small as uh, Gerald Ford denying financial assistance to New York City in the 70s. So the bankers had to step in. And then it'll shift gears to a story about Patti Smith and the cooler than you music scene that was emerging. Uh, and by putting the stories next to each other, he gets new ideas. He gets different thematics emerge. And so that's a long-winded way of saying that's what we realized we wanted to do sort of a smaller version of with this show. We did get some comments, some criticism, some pushback, a little bit about kind of, and, and I'm just curious in general, whether you feel like when you do build something around a big idea, uh, and in this case, you know, that we can explain kind of modern America through the lens of basketball players in the 80s, and then even more so that Ronald Reagan and Republicans at the time really transformed this country. Uh, do you worry ever that when you start from that big idea, that then you are fitting stories into that big idea, you know, the whole like when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You know, when you have Ronald Reagan as your boogeyman, everything looks like something that's his fault. Do you do you worry about that trap? I, you know, in making the show, you and I would talk about this with Raghu and Brian that we wanted to make sure that we made it clear that Ronald Reagan was not the philosopher behind the right wing movement. He was a spokesperson. We wanted to make it clear that it was the the Republican revolution didn't just hit the Republicans. It hit the Democrats. It hit all of America. So we were very specifically worried about that. And we wanted to make it yeah. clear that we weren't going to ignore what Bill Clinton 
did to this country. We weren't going to ignore those aspects. So it didn't worry me too much. We also got a number of emails asking us kind of how we felt about personal responsibility in all of this. I mean, so much of our series is about the large forces that shape us. But at the end of the day, you know, we have uh, the Len Biases who decided to use Coke, or we have Terry Furlow who decided to drive while he was uh, intoxicated, or we have Billy Moore who picked up a gun. How do you think about personal responsibility, personal choice in this larger context that we've been discussing. I think it's like anything. There's a tendency to want to swing from one extreme to the other when you talk about something like the balance between personal choice and how actually little control we have versus larger forces around us. And it's it's like anything. It's a balance. It's There are larger forces that affect us. When you do tax cuts for the super rich and you take away resources from the poor, there's a lot of individual choices, millions of people with individual choices, but in general, you're going to see grotesque wealth, outsized influence over the political system, and in general, you're going to see with poverty, you're going to see increased you know, drug use, increased mental illness. Guns. Now, that doesn't mean that people don't have individual choice, but we. Ha- I think the bottom line is we have less than we think we do, and the right-wing revolution swung it to such an extreme where everything's about careerism and bold individuals that it's gotten a little ridiculous, and you see it in, in our country. We're unable to solve these big problems because we're so focused on this individual lens. All right, let's take a quick break, and then we will bring in the other producers of the show and keep talking about some of the stuff we didn't get to and some of the other behind-the-scenes stuff. All right, we're back, and I am very pleased now to welcome in the two main producers and writers for the show, Raghu Manavalan, who has really been at the head of all this and working this thing from day one. So, hello, Raghu. Hey, how's it going? And Brian Steele. Hello, Brian. Hello. Hello. Hello, gentlemen. Okay, before we get into it, I have a quick question for everyone. Um, I'm curious, what is your favorite George Mike and Riff of the entire series? <laughs> oh, he was uh, running a honeypot yep. operation. The honeypot, honey which pot I just think is... I think honey, honey pot is in my like top five best words in the English language. It makes me laugh every single time. You can't beat it. I would go. I, I liked honey pot. I liked his honey pot operation in Belgrade that he was sleeping <laughs> with high ranking Serbian officials to get top secret. By the way, in my mind, I sort of think of it like Colin Firth's character in uh, Ticker Taylor Soldier Spy. Yep. I know it's a book. I haven't read the book. I've seen the movie. But Colin Firth was clearly running a honeypot operation for men and women. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was sleeping with the other guy, the assassin. He was sleeping with uh, Oldman's wife. And I like to th- I like oh, to think yeah. that Mike and ran his honeypot uh, trap like that. It was men and women just get the secrets. Any Anyone, anything, sure. Brian? God, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I just uh, appreciate that we finally, as a society, got to take yeah. it to George Mikan. I mean, there's he no one it. favorite. I just really knew coming into this that I wanted to take him down a page <laughs> too. And, uh, 
I think we we did it. Did and he I'm go down a peg or up oh, a peg? I feel like we we vaulted him uh, back into the public <laughs> imagination. I, yeah. I think we took him up. People don't take people up uh, a peg enough. I think we took him up a peg. I would go with the Studio 54 story just because if George Mikan actually played basketball in the 70s, he would be at Studio 54. Sure. I just think that's a magical uh, in, a we, mental image. We did get a couple emails from people that had the vibe of like, what the fuck is up with you guys and George Mikan? Like, what do you have it? Do you have it in for George Mikan? And we do not. It is all from a place of love. Um, there's one interesting, actually, George Mikan tidbit that I was thinking about whether we could wedge it in but we couldn't but do you know this the george mike and shack story that that yeah yeah that shack actually paid for george mike funeral um at some point in the i don't know when it was in the late 90s or early 2000s really but yeah this really interesting you know and i think mike and did kind of fall a little bit into obscurity and i don't you know i don't know about the later chapters of his life other than what we reported on in our series um but uh but yeah which i've always has made me think more of of shack for sure I uh, I had yeah, no idea. I so. I don't know one single thing about George Mike, and all I know is his basketball playing career, commissioner of the ABA with the million dollar check with Kareem, and then those incredible photos. I, the whole riff, by the way, for anyone listening, was entirely inspired by the pictures of him with those giant circular glasses yeah. <laughs> holding the ball in some awkward way. All right, let's talk about some of the stories we did not cover in this series. Uh, One player, and we got a lot of comments about this, uh, fairly obvious one, is Magic Johnson. Um, You know, Magic did not die, but his life story is one that intersected in all sorts of interesting ways with the real world and the Reagan era and the early 90s. So, Brian, you want to talk a little bit about Magic? Yeah, I mean, I think that... Uh, if anything, Magic Johnson is kind of the the mirror image of what our series is in that he is the one who survived. And obviously, Magic Johnson is so foundational in what the NBA is. But looking at his story of coming into the league, transforming it, and then this epidemic that was uh, taking over America in the 80s and Ronald Reagan, who we've talked about extensively basically ignoring it, uh, casting it aside for a variety of reasons, including that it was predominantly early on affecting uh, the homosexual community. And this is a, a player that we really explored in the series. You know, he was far from an overt political figure. And this was his moment where he became kind of the symbol of something and really changed the dynamic. I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, one of the first people we talk about in the show with Terry Frollo is Magic Johnson. And one of the last people we talk about in the show with Craig Hodges and Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf is Magic Johnson to tell his stories, to tell the story of the NBA and to tell the story about how the eighties had all these swirling forces around it that that would fall on individuals on their own is to tell the story of Magic Johnson as well. Right. And even if you were famous, even if you had tons of money, even if you had millions of people looking out for you and you know betting on you to succeed, things still happen to you regardless of that. I was always, I, I thought it was interesting because you guys are Raghu and Brian, you're 100% right. He's a guy who was fairly apolitical in the 80s and then he got hit with HIV and it really mirrors nicely to where we are now because I, I'm consistently amazed by how much what we consider quote politics has expanded uh Mm. i remember talking to some relatives who are you know fox news watchers voted for trump 
and I we were having arguments and I said, look, can we just talk and not talk about any of this because this isn't going to go well. And they said, well, you talk politics too. And I was like, what, what do I bring up? Well, you talk about the climate. And I was like confused for a second. Like, what do you mean? And then I, I just realized it's expanded so much that gun violence, the climate, these are now for some people, political issues. And I think that's what why Magic Johnson is such a powerful story that, you know, politics aren't politics. Politics are a way that people discuss and maneuver to gain power. This is like government leadership choices, issues that we deal with as a people, and Magic Johnson ran head on into it. I think the other reason we didn't deal with Magic Johnson that much, to be completely transparent, is we are right now in the middle of filming a series for HBO working title is showtime lakers and uh and it it deals with a lot of that it, coincidentally jeff perlman wrote a great book called showtime and that's what this series is we're adapting it i directed the pilot and or am a producer on it so to go into magic johnson would have been a little tricky i would have had a bunch of writers and hbo people going what the hell man uh but so the listeners are correct. Magic Johnson is a major, major figure in this story. What one story? Because I think it's kind of um, uh, it kind of explains uh, Ronald Reagan's relationship with AIDS is um, that so Ronald Reagan and uh, and Nancy Reagan were both from Hollywood. Uh, they both were actors and. Um, that's kind of where they got they got their beginnings. And one of their dear, dear friends was Rock Hudson, who was the mm -hmm. legendary um, actor, you know, kind of the rom-coms with Doris Day in the 50s and 60s. That was his brand. Uh, also went to my high school. Shout out. <laughs> but he, um, uh, Nancy Reagan was the one who noticed a, you know, rash or a welt on him and told him to get it checked out in the 80s. Um, and it turned out that he had AIDS. He was secretly uh, uh, homosexual, um, kept it under wraps for decades in Hollywood, uh, had contracted the disease. Then in his waning days, um, as he was getting sicker and sicker, reached out to Nancy and Ronald, desperately pleading for any experimental uh, medication or access that they could provide and they completely shut him down and wow. just stopped responding to him. Um, and he was one of their dearest friends and they just cast him aside. And that kind of speaks to their larger reaction to the epidemic overall. But it just is, it's just very fascinating to me. A couple other names. Let's just see if we have any sort of quick thoughts. Uh, other players that we talked about it, and I know Adam you've brought them up in some interviews but you know Hank Gathers Roy Tarpley uh, either of those want to say anything about either of them yeah I mean Gathers was a big one it was such a public death you saw him collapse on the court in front of everyone he was so beloved him and Bo Kimball from Philadelphia which is my hometown uh, were just famous best friends incredible players they were at LMU you know, it was as far as we only had so much time. We only had so many episodes. Gathers died from a heart defect. 
there's definitely a story here. There's definitely ways it could harmonize with the changes in America. We could have gotten into healthcare. We could have gotten into, you know, lack of team oversight, the pressure to play, the neighborhood he came from. We could have done a great episode about North Philly, which is a fascinating area. I went to Temple University. Uh, so there, there definitely could have been a story about Hank Gathers. And uh, Roy Tarpley is another one. Could have been an all-time great. Could have been a Hall of Famer. He would he would bounce out of the league from drugs. He would come back and immediately put up 20 points, 18 rebounds. Then he would bounce out of the league again, come back, 25 points, 20 rebounds. Uh, and with all the things he was doing to his body, to be able to come back and to play like that, that that's really... People talk about Len Bias as the lost Hall of Famer from that time, but I would throw Roy Tarpley in there. I mean, we we have kicked around the idea of you know a second season. That would definitely be someone I would yeah. love to dive into. I mean, one little tidbit I learned about him was that he was banned by the league for substance abuse, and then he sued the league for violating the ADA because of because they didn't su- mm. support him and they didn't treat his addiction as a disability, which is super fascinating. We got more emails and notes about Reggie Lewis than anyone else. So, you know, I will say we gave it the college try. We did look into Reggie Lewis and tried to find a way to do an episode about him. Anyone want to talk a little bit about kind of what we discovered and why we ultimately did not end up doing uh, Reggie Lewis as his own episode? Yeah, I mean, Reggie Lewis was a, uh, a Boston Celtic. He was kind of the first real star they had in the waning days of the classic 80s Bird, McHale, Parrish Celtics. Um, He was drafted the year after Len Bias, who was another Celtic that we explore in the series, passed away tragically. Um, And he was a really fascinating guy. By the time he was drafted by the Boston Celtics, was kind of an adopted uh, Boston boy. And he uh, became a burgeoning star for them in the early 90s and became the first captain of the team after Larry Bird. And also, in a way, maybe their first African-American star that carried the team since the Bill Russell era and, and that classic era. And he sort of transcended uh, or started to transcend race in a town that has a complicated history with race. Anyway, he when we started to dig into him, there's so much to explore and we tried to explore it all but his story the story of his death is such a uh, complicated story that involves you know the pressures of the league at a time when they were uh, exploding and money was pouring into it and they were signing new cable deals that the celtics had just uh, lost a player an african-american player to drugs and now here was this other player that died because of a heart defect, um, tragically, uh, but there were rumors swirling around it. And it, to unpack it became a very uh, complicated task in a way that we felt really honored Reggie Lewis, that people love. He was a real hero in the community. We we really struggled to find the right angle to do it i mean quite simply as brian alluded to he died of a heart defect there were serious rumors that there was cocaine use uh there wasn't really a definitive answer for us to wade into those waters i mean we spoke to ron suskind who's an incredible investigative reporter who did a big piece on reggie lewis for us to wade into those waters and make a call on that 
we would really have to like have Ragu or Brian go to Boston and do Mm -hmm. like three months of investigative work uh, because you can't make that allegation. You can't just say that definitively one way or the other without absolute proof. And, uh, and, and the bigger picture is it doesn't really matter. Uh, he was a wonderful young guy, an incredible talent, beloved by the community, whether it was a pre-existing heart condition or whether there was some recreational drug. I, mean, I, I, it, it really, at that time, everyone was using those kinds of drugs. The reason we would consider doing the story is because of what his death, how it changed the NBA's drug policy, which to that point had been a little bit of a facade where they weren't really testing players on a regular basis, just rookies. And I think the belief for the NBA was you have to vet the rookies to make sure they don't get into the league. And they were ignoring the veterans. And once again, pressure to play. You know, yeah. uh, Reggie Lewis, there was a chance because of some of the issues he was dealing with, his career could have ended. So, boy, I, I once again, if we do a second season, which I would love to, I mean, these episodes take a surprising amount of work. I think people just think, oh, it's a podcast. No, it's every bit like a documentary. I and mean, the work you guys did on this, Raghu, Brian, Jody, it's remarkable. The amount of research, the amount of writing, the amount of interviews the amount of background research uh it's incredible and reggie lewis is the most complicated one i think of all the the subjects we were looking at i mean ragu would you agree with that oh absolutely i mean this was something you and jody had mentioned at the beginning too which i would just want to bring up real quick we aren't a salacious true crime podcast right this that was not the intent of this i did not want to call people like terry frollo's brother and be like hey remember that time your brother died isn't that a crazy story that's not what we were trying to do so when it comes to people like reggie lewis like there had to be a real reason for us to kind of dredge up those stories other than just bringing these deaths back up into the, like the mm. public consciousness. That's I, I, I'll tell you the one thing I learned about the Reggie Lewis story, and, and you could argue we could have just done the podcast about this. I had no idea. I didn't know it was that complicated and that fiery. Yeah. I mean, kind of incendiary debate and how it Boston and racial dynamics and, and yet he was beloved and his widow and the insurance yeah. settlement. And I, I had no idea. Well, it's almost like, what we were looking for in every episode was kind of one player's story and maybe their death unlocks in a fairly you know turnkey manner a bigger theme, right? And so you can say Benji, guns, Len, drugs. And this one, as you're saying, it, it kind of half unlocks a whole interconnected weave of, of different themes and, and issues, which actually, you know, if we ended up doing it, would kind of be the point, like that, that the NBA had gotten so big, the NBA was so enmeshed mm-hmm. that one NBA story is a thread that you start pulling and you see everything. But narratively, like that's just a little tougher to pull off, right? Um, and there was a cleanliness in some of the others that I liked just from kind of piecing them together. I cannot express to you how close we came to doing a Reggie Lewis episode. <laughs> People should know that, yes. Rogu, you want to talk a little bit about some of the other... We've gotten a bunch of emails from people. There's a lot of other kind of swirling themes and incidents in this era, especially if you push a little more into the 90s. But, um, you know, the dress code, the NBA dress code, that certainly mm-hmm. unlocks all sorts of stuff. Uh, we got a few emails from people pointing out that, you know, we didn't really talk about labor uh, and and certainly mm-hmm. like the, the NBA union. Um, and, and that would probably unlock some sort of stories about labor relations in the 80s and 90s. Uh, I personally, you know know about donald sterling uh we did the whole series on him at 30 for 30 but certainly there there's the kind of like relationship between owners and players um 
what else is on your mind as you think about stuff we may not have gotten to? Yeah, uh, this is a weird thought, but I'm going to take it there. Um, there's this wrestler uh-huh. named The Undertaker, right? He's, and he just wrapped up his career recently. There was something he mentioned recently in interviews, which is, you know, back in my day, we went out, we got into bar fights, we did drugs, we were out until four o'clock in the morning, we got arrested, we were real men. Now these kids go out and they just play video games after they wrestle. And it's just such, they're just kids, they're kids all the time. And I feel like that mirrors basketball and like the 80s and the 90s and kind of where we are now today in a lot of ways because it's like Carl Anthony Towns, after he plays basketball, hops on Twitch, the video game streaming service, and plays video games with his fans. Yeah. It's just a thought well, that's dude, been swirling around no, my head. No, I mean, yeah. what's interesting about that is I think it actually mirrors something else too, which, and you're talking about also not just the kind of maturity or style of player, you're mm-hmm. talking about technology, mm-hmm. you're talking about a changing culture. Um, and not only do these players jump on Twitch and play video games, they also jump on social media and speak out about yeah. social justice, mm-hmm. uh, which they weren't doing back then. And that speaks to how the priorities have changed. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I don't, I don't want to call a generation of players selfish because I, I, I don't necessarily believe that, but the priorities were different and it was about building this brand that is the NBA, really building the, the, the foundation of what the NBA is now built on top of. And that's what these players were doing. And nowadays they're everywhere they go, they're videotaped, but they also can connect with their fans in a more intimate way than they could back then. And, maybe even push them to open up their minds about things like Black Lives Matter and social justice. But it's also interesting that what the NBA players say, like Brian said about social justice, then you look at the NFL and you have players like Josh Allen using media to go out and question the efficacy of vaccines. (laughs) It's like, Mm. I mean, it's really a a stark relief of the NBA, which I I loved how Chuck D and Bomani Jones pointed out that the NBA players travel the world. I thought that was one of the... Like most insightful yeah. things I've Brilliant. heard. Like I thought Brilliant. I knew most things about the I NBA, never. and that was just like, whoa! I'd never really thought about this. Yeah. And then you think about yeah. Josh Allen, which once again, I'm sure he's a great guy. I'm not saying he's a bad guy. And then you have these NBA oh. guys who are just all over the planet, interacting with people, meeting foreign players. The league is so international. Mm-hmm. Uh, that mm-hmm. I, I I agree. They go to China every yeah, year. It's yeah. it's it's amazing. All right, let's take another quick break, and then we're going to come back, and we're actually going to play some tape from the series that we did not include, but our favorite tape that did not make it into the final episode. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
we told people that we would be playing some tape that didn't make it into the final episodes. There's always stuff that we love that we just can't find a home for. Rogu, do you want to go first and play something? Yeah. So I'm going to play a clip from James Andrew Miller. If you guys don't know who that is, he's a historian, he's a journalist, uh, he's an author, he has this great podcast called Origins. He kind of writes these anthologies about the beginnings of things. So he has a great book about how ESPN came to be. He has a great story about how SNL came to be. And um, Adam, I don't know if you're aware, but you used to work on SNL, actually. So <laughs> when we did this interview, you know, we this is something you've actually mentioned in other interviews about the show on other shows. Um that the only other place you've seen this kind of slate of deaths that were unexpected was in Hollywood. And then the innocence officially ended when John died at the, at the Marmont. And the idea that that had happened to him, I think, was, you know, the huge paradigm shift. No one was, you know, talking about the, uh, the addiction part of it and um, certainly not the financial ruin part of it. And I think that, that there was a real... L- steep learning curve but i mean carrie fisher said it was like one of the most you know eye-opening days of her life when john died um and i think a lot of people changed their behavior or tried to change their behavior after that one note that i kept getting from a lot of people was that len bias john belushi when i saw those two guys died that was it for me and drugs i couldn't touch them i thought it was a great opportunity for us to kind of pick your brain about snl and your time working there because you kind of came in toward the end of that era i feel like yeah, I did. When I, I was hired in 95, and by the time I walked in there, the ravages of the 70s and 80s had already taken their toll. And obviously, Belushi is a very public death, but there were a lot of other people that had their careers knocked off the tracks who didn't die but became addicted, had to go into kind of a state of semi-retirement, Um There were a couple other people there who started having psychotic episodes, uh, running down the hallway naked, thinking people were chasing them. The whole downside of those drugs hit. Uh, But how did people react to that stuff at the time? I mean, from talking to old timers at SNL, obviously, if they're the old timers, they're the ones who didn't do a lot of those drugs or were able to dodge the ill effects. So they they talked about it in a sense of, we just thought cocaine was a pick-me-up. It was fun, it kept the energy going, and several of the old-timers told me, and then one day I look in the hallway and -and so-and-so is running down the hallway naked saying they're chasing me, they're chasing me. Hmm. And then one day I'm backstage and this cast member who was delightful starts cursing me out for no reason at all. And so story after story, you would hear about that. And uh, and then when Belushi died. Uh, and then the final guy was Farley, was the, but mm. Farley came through in an age where everyone knew to watch out for these warning signs. And much to Lorne Michaels' credit, he just had a really clear policy about it. If you have a issue with drugs, I will pay for your rehab. You go leave, you go take care of it, and your job is waiting for you when you come back. And that's Mm. just what he did with people. And Farley was a guy, I think, who went through rehab many, many times and would always have a little successful run afterwards of five months, six months. And by the time he hosted when I was there, it was clear though the house was starting to cave in. It was really sad to watch. Mm. He was such a lovely, just 
talented ball of energy that you just wanted to hug, you wanted to be around, but the drugs had just gotten him. And so Lauren's last ditch attempt was let's have him host and maybe he'll rediscover that love of live performing and it can make a difference. And you could tell it was just breaking Lauren's heart the entire week and a bunch of other mm-hmm. people, Robert Smigel, people that were really friends with him. And we were more fans and it was breaking our heart. Um, and of course, what's crazy much like a lot of these people, like Roy Tarpley, like these incredible athletes, Farley was so talented, he did a great show. He was hilarious, mm. a big ball of energy, and if you were watching at home, you never would have known anything was amiss. And I think he died five, six months after that show. It's just horrible. Uh, Brian, you want to play a piece of tape that didn't make it in that you particularly love? Yes, so um, we got to uh, speak to the legend, the logo, Jerry West for this series, which was one of the most exciting moments of the whole project. Um, And I can't express to you uh, how much of just a a sweet guy he was. Just so kind and and soft-spoken and, uh, but obviously like uh, heroic too in the way that he's talked about his struggles with with, uh, mental health and depression. And uh, this clip kind of dovetails with that. Uh, so let me play it. We lost to the Boston Celtics and in the finals. I, honestly, I, I wanted to quit. And I was in the prime of my career. I couldn't take it anymore. We had let the city of Los Angeles down. We had let the franchise down where I really felt we had the best team. And I was jogging with a friend of mine. and. This guy came up to me and he was jogging. He said, oh, you guys choked again. I'm telling you, it's the first time in my life where if people want to be critical, I'm fine with being criticized. I've been criticized for a lot of things. I literally, he had to hold me back, okay? I wanted to kill this guy. I mean, literally kill him because it hurt so much to lose and to have somebody from Los Angeles who doesn't know what a toll it takes on you, and particularly if you care and if you're really competitive, that was like a stake in the heart for me. And it was one of the worst days I think I've ever had in my life. And I thank God my friend was there. It's kind of a uh, sort of a funny little anecdote in a sense, but it just also speaks to what Jerry was going through at the time. And, and we got to explore in our episode in Ricky Berry and mental health, which is just the pressures of, of wins and losses of fame. Um, and then certainly just the pressures that Jerry West put on himself and his background and uh, troubled childhood. I don't know. It's a really in, in, interesting man with a, a lot of complexity to him who went on to become maybe the most in totality greatest winner or significant figure in yeah. NBA history, possibly. I mean, yeah. just with all the ways he touched the game. Yeah, if you include so. his career as a GM, you know, as a, yeah, Absolutely. yeah, mm-hmm. a crazy career. It's, it once again just shows we keep talking about it and it's the thing about fame and exterior, you know, gratification that you have people that are in pain and they go into the material world to solve that pain through success through achievements, mm-hmm. 
thinking that it will be mirrored in how they feel inside. And so I think Jerry West felt like, hey, I'm this great NBA player. I've done my very best and all the exterior world. He's done everything he can. And that one guy says that to him and it just points right to how he feels inside. You just see that part of the, our story in this podcast repeat over and over yeah. again. And the people that really get it and have a foundation and that uh, tend to do really well. It's a really painful story, and you're right, like uh, an identifiable story. I think we all have those feelings. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, you know, you have that foundation, but also as we've shown that you live in a context in which there is support and there's understanding. I right. mean, it's like we're all going to fail. We're all going to have moments where we lose ourselves, and it's really just about whether we have the support around us and ha- and how to react to those moments and so forth. Right. There's something I just want to mention real quick because I think something Adam brought up kind of speaks to this. Um, so the rapper DMX died recently, right? And he was someone that had dealt with drug issues and things like that. My friend, he's a stand-up comedian. He's an actor. His name's Felonious Monk. And he wrote this caption, and I think it kind of just encapsulates a lot about what our show's about. Man, he's gone, and nobody on earth can capture that loss better than him. All I know is pain. That isn't to say that everything that happened to him was bad. But when enough bad and big enough bad happens, that pain is still there, even in the good times. For my era, DMX made me feel heard and seen. The crack era was life's Ponzi scheme. A few people made some money and everyone else lost. Losing X reminded me that even those who escaped that era were irrevocably changed. And it hurts even more because that pain wasn't his. It was given to him like so many others whose traumas found them when they were looking for joy. Oh, that's good. That was it. No matter what happened, no matter how much money you were given, no matter how big that contract was at the end of your career... You cannot run the stuff that happened to you when you were younger that was handed to you by society. Have you guys noticed yeah. that a word you're starting to hear in the last couple of years is inner or a phrase is intergenerational trauma, hmm. which is that didn't uh-huh. exist. I never heard anyone say that five years ago. But I think what's cool about the story, the story that we dove into with Death at the Wing is intergenerational lessons learned. Right. which are really mm. remarkable and kind of the positive side of intergenerational trauma, which the DMX story is the, the sad side of it, but seeing where the NBA is now with these guys learning how not to fall into these pitfalls and how to avoid the open windows. Uh, it's, it's that, that part of the story, even though it's a dark subject matter about all these guys dying, mm-hmm. that part of the story I found really hopeful and exciting. All right, we'll be back with more tape and more behind-the-scenes stories right after this break. Stick around. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I'm going to throw out one piece of tape that we didn't include that I particularly loved. It's actually, I guess, just a piece of archival that we built a a bit of an anecdote around. But there 
our series swirls around Ronald Reagan and basketball, and we try and weave the two and come back and forth. But actually, one moment in which they actually intersected, and we kept searching for these, you know, is there ever a story where Reagan and basketball are actually side by side? And certainly in 1984, there was a Rose Garden ceremony for the Celtics with Ronald Reagan. And so there is some tape of Ronald Reagan talking about basketball. Well... I thank you, and by the way, I'd like to let you in on a little secret. I wanted to welcome all of you in the Oval Office, and then I found out the ceiling is too low. And, you know, I think there was a version of the series in which we actually started with that. The very first thing you'd hear in the series was that, because it was just like, well, we're talking about these two things. Let's have them together for a moment. And it it just didn't feel like it unlocked any big themes. It was just sort of a blasé ceremony. Other than, Brian, help me remember this. Larry Bird skipped that ceremony for some reason? So, uh, well, it's interesting. I mean, just talk about how times have changed. The Celtics didn't even know that they were going to go to the White House. It was They won the championship and then were told, <laughs> we're going tomorrow. <laughs> um, and these were men who... Almost all of them, I think, went out and just got hammered that night, just partied until dawn. And um, and then they had to go and, and shake hands. And Larry Bird basically was not interested in that and said he knows where to find me if he needs me. Talking about Reagan. Talking about Ronald. <laughs> uh, I told old Ronnie and then just took off. And what's interesting just is... Also, not just that, you know, how different that was that they were just all of a sudden, you know, shuttled to the White House. They also, by the way, flew um, commercial <laughs> to the White House. They had the the, the Flacky uh, was frantically trying to get like tickets booked on whatever airline at the last minute. But also just when you look at now, not going to the White House is, is such a, a political statement um, in the time we live in and causes such a. Uh, a media uh, event, uh, you know, oh, LeBron's not going because he has this to say about Trump or, you know, it's it, it really is, you know, a whole day of news stories. And back then, yeah. you know, he just, Bird just gave that quote and they just took off and went I, to God knows where, French Lick? I don't know. Uh, so it was just a very different yeah. time. Although eight years later, right, it's is when Craig Hodges is at the White House and hands Bush that letter. Yep. And, mm. yeah. yeah, maybe a um, There were all these little moments where basketball and the Reagans kind of do inter, you know, bump into each other. And certainly, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's some great photos actually out there of Nancy Reagan doing Just Say No events at basketball games. We just couldn't for some reason find the meaty enough story to kind of include one of those scenes where our kind of our two worlds are there together in the same room. Uh, but I think we were able to weave back and forth between the two. All right, let's start to wrap up. Uh, I'm quickly curious if any of you want to articulate, you know, one or two things, small, big, um, little stories or ideas that will stick with you going forward from this. Just what's your, you know, what's the takeaway? Yeah. um, Well, first, it's been a joy to work on this project and just endlessly fascinating. Um, But there's so many little kernels along the way. But the big picture thing that really will stick with me and it's really shaped how I view the world we live in now is this thesis that Adam brought initially, uh, which is that there was a seismic shift 
that was coincided or was led by the Ronald Reagan coming into office. And that before that, really, for the previous 40 years, it, it was a, a different country. And his movement came in and absolutely just shredded what we think of as government, a support system for people in need, um, and changed the priorities. And um, we've been living in it ever since. And we might possibly, maybe, no, hope, be at a turning point right hope now. Hope is not allowed. Sorry, we've had this conversation before. We're not allowed <laughs> to talk about silver Sorry. linings here. My bad. Uh, <laughs> My bad. The world, the world is shit. And... Uh, uh, you know, it remains to be seen what moment we're living through right now. But um, but just my entire life, not adult life, my entire life, I was born in 1978, has been in a world shaped by the changes that happened yeah. in the 80s. And I knew that, but I don't think I knew it as with such clarity as I do now. Yeah. Um, I hope I never have to hear the phrase uh, shut up and dribble ever again. I hope this show <laughs> has kind of shown that. Maybe four people on the planet don't have to be affected by politics, but everyone else does. Oh, that's good. That about sums it up. I, I was struck by the fact that we dove into this these two difficult stories, the you know, the telling of the Reagan revolution, the right wing revolution, and the rise, the the initial tragedy of the NBA and then the rise of the NBA. And, you know, we're navigating different cultures, different experiences, different historical narratives, and, and this really thick, dense world, which you guys did an incredible job on. But I just was struck the other day by, the at the end of this journey, who was there? Chuck D and Bomani Jones. Yeah. Like, I feel like we did all that work. And all we had to do was just mm -hmm. get two of the smartest people in the world in a room together to talk about. And I really felt like it was the end of some epic journey. And we yeah. were at the top of the mountain mm -hmm. and the Shaolin mm -hmm. wise man was there with the, the long white beard. And it was Chuck mm -hmm. D and Bomani Jones. Yeah. I just thought that was incredible. Totally. And then the other one is... Of a lot of the moments that we talked, we had so many great conversations with people. So many people were amazing, like sharing difficult stories and interesting stories and different perspectives. To me, it all goes back to Billy Moore on that street corner outside Benji Wilson's high school. And Benji Wilson is dealing with drama with his girlfriend who's just had a baby. And he bumps into Billy Moore. And, and the initial thesis of this that... We're less, our lives are less determined than we think. There's big forces pushing us away. Sure, we have choice, but there's large forces. That, that bump, Benji Wilson bumping into Billy Moore, just that. And Billy Moore has the gun because of a bunch of reasons. And Benji Wilson is upset because of a bunch of reasons. And they're in this neighborhood that's different than it was 10 years before because of a bunch of reasons. I just that one moment yeah. keeps coming back to me. Totally. Um, I will throw out there that I think it's high time that maybe the Kings honor Ricky Barry in some way, and certainly mm. that the NBA honor Craig Hodges and Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf in a way, and it won't make up for the way that they were treated in their day, but I wonder if you know that conversation can happen. If that one thing came out of this entire experience, this whole show, that's what it should be is honor Craig Hodges and mm -hmm. Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf and honor Ricky Berry. Like, those are easy things to yep. do, and that should be done. I'm going to throw one more in there. Uh, Terry Furlow was amazing in college as someone who 
dove through a bunch yeah, just of just realizing how good like, well, he's cool. Okay, since we're going there, can I just say we had these we had these moments where Adam, but then the two of you as well who are real hoops heads would start just waxing on about a player I'd never heard about talking <laughs> yeah. about them as if they were the greatest thing you know and I'm like how many random right, people could right. be this good but right. every once in a while you do right. realize the Terry Furlows of the world were amazing the Benji Wilson he dropped of the, 50 of the world were going to be really special he doesn't even have his jersey retired yeah. at Michigan State like that's absurd yeah. they can do that. oh that's, that's a good that's one yeah he scored 50 in a game he was all American before the three-point line and he was just shooting these shots that were so ahead of their time I like that absurd. one yeah. I like that one okay anyone want to call someone steph curry before steph curry before we end this thing <laughs> I, i'll say that i i think that uh, jo- george mikan was really steph curry That's right. before okay. steph curry. i mean drazen petrovich really was steph here curry go, before steph curry go. right all right this is why you need an editor i feel like we said that maybe once for every episode and then eventually ended up only saying it about drazen but uh we kind of okay. said that for every play by the way jody you are you are steph curry before steph curry if there was a time machine and your uh-huh. podcast skills could be a po- forget it yeah, forget, forget it. it exactly um <laughs> all right fellas this has been really fun and it's been a pleasure to work on this and we should um shout out also the rest of the team who helped make this happen um like really great crew over the last year or so uh putting this together this has been really satisfying and fun so thanks to uh brian Steele, and rogu monavallen and adam mckay thank you jody thank you jody thank all you guys thank you and that brings us to the end of the episode and the end of the series. Um, look, on behalf of the whole team, not just Adam and Ragu and Brian, but also Nuna and Shane and Harry and Stacy and Jason and Joanna and Catherine and Laura, all the folks who worked really hard on this, um, on behalf of everyone, thank you to you for listening. And please, if you are still listening to this, we know you're a super fan. So please help spread the word about the series. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks again. And shout out to George Mikan. <laughs>